This is Efficiency On Demand. On Demand. High Performance. Leadership. People think overwhelm, craziness, craziness. No time. No time. No fun. No fun. Just work, 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 work. It's time to slow down, to speed up. You owe more to yourself. This is Efficiency on Demand with Monique. Monique is a high-performance and leadership specialist. During the show, Monique and her guests will share the harsh truth behind their success stories, what it means to perform on a high level, and to be a leader in this world. It's time to take control of your time and live life limitless. This is Efficiency on Demand, and this is your host, Monique. Welcome back to another episode of Efficiency On Demand. Today I have two amazing, powerful women. And just like I did, they launched their books a little bit ago. And I'm super excited to talk about because book launching is, you know, a little bit from another planet, I want to say. So we have today on the show, Joanne Beckshaw and Adrian Lawrence. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Yeah, for sure. Also, I want to just mention, if you don't see, Adrian wears yellow. I have to, I have to say that. So thank you. Thank you, Adrian. <laughs> <laughs> I do my best. <laughs> <laughs> so we didn't ever have two guests, which I'm super excited about. And I want to first get a little bit into your stories, but before... Before we start, I ask all of my guests who they are and where are they from. And we're just going to start with Adrienne and then we go back and forth. All right. I'm Adrienne Lawrence. I'm from Los Angeles, California. I'm an attorney turned TV broadcaster and I wrote a book called Staying in the Game, the playbook for beating workplace sexual harassment to give people the tools they need to, you know, keep the upper hand when it comes to the workplace and people acting up. Keeping the upper hand. Oh, that brings really great uh, imagination to uh, workplace harassment. That's that's for sure. I love that. Jen, how about you? Hi. So I'm from Long Island, New York, and you'll probably hear my Long Island accent pop in from time to time. <laughs> um, I'm living now in the Washington, D.C. area. I'm a professor of psychology and women's studies and a sex and relationship therapist and the author of The Feminist Handbook. And I wrote this book to help women understand that it's not them, it's the patriarchy. Amen. <laughs> so while we're at what you do, Joanne. Tell me a little bit about, you know, how did you grow up and what did, what did get you to, well, my grammar, okay. What got you to the point of writing the book about feminism, making sure women understand it's not them, but the patriarchy? Sure. So I think the, the telling story from my childhood that uh, resonates today with feminism and helps lead me down the path of being a feminist is that I'm an adoptee. So mm -hmm. I'm um, an adoptee from the era when uh, in the 19th 
I'm aging myself now, but uh, late 1960s, early 1970s, so I'm actually 52. But uh, during this time in the United States, it was shameful for uh, single women to uh, to have babies and and raise them. And so at this time, many of the women were ushered to give their children up for adoption. And while that doesn't tell the whole story of my background, it does tell part of it. And so I am a product of the American foster care system. I was adopted by a family as an infant and raised in that family, later reunited with my birth family, first with my birth mother's family when I was pregnant with my daughter. So she's 16 now. And I never met my birth mother, who, by the way, uh, had schizophrenia. So that also was Mm. part of the story. And I met my birth father and birth and my half sister and, and brother just a couple of years ago through DNA testing, actually. So how does that relate to feminism? Well, and also the idea of it's not you, it's the patriarchy. So if you really think about the that belief, that socialized belief that, you know, it's better for a a woman to give her child up for adoption than to raise the child, her own child, and face social ostracism, right? And so there's a whole gaslighting that goes on with the field of adoption, that it's a happy ending for everyone, that um, it's better for the mother. Mothers don't want to have the children. They can give them up to parents who are just dying to have children. And it's, and it's just a happy ending for the adoptee. But that's not really what it's like, that there's uh, adoptees actually experience a lot of trauma. And, and it's hard to talk about because our cultural narrative is that adoption is a happy ending. And so when adoptees start to say, well, but hey, it actually isn't, it's complicated. You know, we're trying to figure out our identity and, and you can see how complicated that would be in like transracial adoptions, um, international adoptions. That's not my experience, but it can get really painful and complicated. And so, you know, I had to learn to unravel all that stuff and figure out my identity and figure out what was true about adoption, uh, you know, for myself and start to talk about it. And that I, I do believe played a role in my feminist development, that and also my experience being an, a survivor of gender-based violence. Wow, yeah, that's quite a story. I have a few friends, and personally, I'm from Germany. I always mention that because it makes a difference where we are born and in what, it, in what surrounding and environment we are born in. I have mm-hmm. a few friends, they're adopted, and... I can see how it makes a big difference whether or not you are entering the uh, foster care system or whether you are being immediately adopted by a different family and how that whole topic is going to be handled by the adoptive family as well, right? And if you have a chance to meet your birth family and everything. So that's a huge thing. I want to speak to Adrienne as well about her story. So I'm really interested to know what made you go from attorney to TV broadcaster and how you made the transition, but also what got you to talk about sexual harassment in the workplace. That's it. Thank you. So 
My, my journey has been very much one of exploration in that I was always a high achiever. I kind of always was able to go in the direction that I wanted to. And after about eight years of practicing law, I wanted more for myself. I wanted to challenge myself. And so I decided, hey, you know, I kind of feel like I've, I've got my grounding in law. Why not leave? <laughs> so I left a big law firm and I got an opportunity to go straight to ESPN, the sports network, and go straight from a law firm office to an anchor desk. And that's exactly what I did. The thing I wasn't prepared for in leaving my ivory tower of law was how women are treated in, I would almost say, the real world since I had been in law my entire life. And when I got there, the experience of navigating sexual harassment, quid pro quo, kind of these relationships that were almost, they were almost normalized in their seediness. That was an awakening for how the rest of the world was experiencing this life outside of the isolated experiences that I had had practicing law at major firms. So I ended up standing up for the women at the network and being the first on-air personality to sue ESPN for sexual harassment and workplace retaliation. And, uh, and then I wrote this book because I wanted people to have the tools because a lot of people don't know all the ways in which workplace sexual harassment manifests. And they need to know it's more than come on. It's about put downs. It's about efforts to make you play small, to keep you under someone's thumb. And there are ways in which you can beat it and still keep your job and still keep your name. All of the things that oftentimes we as women suffer the most. And so being able to hand those tools off in my book, Staying in the Game, to others, primarily women, since we experience a vast majority of detrimental sexual harassment at work is an empowering experience and knowledge to get notes from people saying that my book helped them navigate a supervisor who was getting out of line and so on and so forth. And um, so my journey has been very much one of exploration and giving back and making sure other people don't have to go through what I went through and what other women unfortunately go through all the time. Yeah. I love that a lot, especially, I feel like in Germany, I've been through the corporate Germany experience. Then I went through agency and then it was like, oh, okay, I'm fine. Thanks. I'm going to opt out. And I just left everything, even Germany behind. <laughs> and I resonate a lot because we're just not taught. I feel like it's not a, it's not a very common theme to be taught about consent first and foremost, Right. And the next thing then is if you experience sexual harassment, especially in the workplace, and you have these authority figures, which mostly are men, because uh, guess what? Patriarchy <laughs> is knocking on the door. <laughs> then we have these feelings that, you know, maybe I shouldn't say something because this is my boss or, well, I'm not supposed to make a scene. I'm supposed to say yes and amen and just be nice, a nice little girl smiling, smile and wave. I'm just gonna, you know, wave out of here. And so when it happened to me, it happened a lot until I just, did I hit someone? I probably did once when I was younger. <laughs> I wouldn't want to lie, so I probably did. It just ended up in in a face-to-face -face and obviously was like, no, he didn't. Yes, he did. And it was like, who got away with it? You know, it wasn't me. So it's very interesting and it's a very powerful thing to speak up 
about it and give those tools to women, especially, right? Absolutely. So I have a few questions, but I want this to be an open discussion. So feel free to just fall into each other and let's just openly discuss. So Jen, I would love to know, you mentioned that not for every adoptee and probably for many, it's not a happy ending. And especially when they go through foster care, what do you think is the impact of adoptions on kids when they go through whether or not it's with families that adopt them immediately or foster care in their development later on? Well, a lot of that depends on the type of adoption. So when I was adopted, the rule of the land was closed adoption. That meant that mm. children, you just, you, you adopt a baby and kind of, you just don't think about the baby's birth parents and you move on. And I was always raised to know I was adopted, but there was n really no information. And that in itself is so damaging and traumatizing as kids and adolescents try to figure out who they are and what their identity is. You know, for, so for many adoptees, that in itself is really traumatic. Then if you take, so, so today, open adoption is more common, um, where there's at least, at the very least, information. Sometimes there's ongoing relationships with the birth family in terms of letters or, or meeting together. I mean, that really depends on the adoptive parents and the birth parents, uh, what kind of arrangement they make. But I do think it's important to talk about the foster care system in the United States, United States, which is really kind of a mess. So there's almost 500,000 kids in foster care. Wow. And on average, foster care kids move seven times a year from family to family. Wow. Seven times yes. a year. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's not unusual for them to also be abused in their foster homes. Wow. You know, so you really have to question why are you removing a child from a home to now move to seven different homes where in some cases they're going to be abused. And I, and I really do believe that making children move seven times in a year is abuse, abuse from the system. Yeah. Right. You know, so, and, and, you know, there's always a strong tie between the child and the, uh, the birth parents, even if the birth parents themselves were abusive. So it's very complicated and traumatizing. And then these, you know, these foster care kids, if they age out of the system, you know, they're 18 and they don't have a family, you know, they don't, you know, they don't have a support network really. So yeah. it's, it's a shame. And, and I, I have a complicated relationship with adoption. You know, in theory, sure. I'd like to say, let's just get rid of it, right? But I've, I've been a therapist for decades, and I've and in earlier part of my career, I worked mostly with adults who were abused as children, and I do know that there are parents who, even if they have all of the resources that they need, they will still be abusive. And also, I... 100% support my LGBT friends and family to be able to create the family, friend, you know, the family that they want. And that may be through adoption. So, you know, I'd like in theory to say, let's just get rid of it, but it's, that's not realistic either. So, you know, but for many adoptees, there are lifelong struggles. Adoptees are overrepresented in mental health and suicide and PTSD. 
Yeah, I think it's um, it is not much talked about how extremely abusive the foster care system is. And we may talk about the U.S. right now, but I believe like the systems are not much better in any other country that I've seen it from so far. So what do you think? And maybe that's also a question for like Adrienne to join in. When we look at, you know, the patriarchy and the, the impact it has, the influence it has on all of the systems, no matter how we define them, right? What do you think should be changed to be able to create maybe better care, better systems, no matter if that's for adoptees only or for women in jobs or even for people with mental health issues to to get support, for example? You know, I would say first step is to get more women in politics, right? So, you know, patriarchy is a male-dominated system and we have uh, mostly men making these decisions. And I'm not, and, and, but I do want to, also say that the patriarchy is a system that women do participate in, right? So it's not yeah. just like this, the solution is any woman will make a change. That's not necessarily the case either. But certainly having more women involved in politics and, and running organizations would change some of the policies that are allowing uh, uh, young children to move seven homes in a year. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. We need to get more women involved in leadership positions and essentially just give women a chance to spearhead things and lead because, you know, just with a different outlook and a different approach in handling things, it may be better. And as we've seen during this pandemic, oftentimes it is very much better when you have a woman leading. Looking to New Zealand. So. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah, absolutely. And I also believe, I mean, it's it's a huge and it's a hot topic, but I mean, political candidates in the U.S. seem to be very old and white. Yes, and white and men, yeah, <laughs> mostly. <laughs> the patriarchy. Um, yeah, <laughs> but it's like, it's it's... I don't know if I want to say it's fascinating to me, but each time some candidate is coming up, they're just getting any older. And I wonder, do young people not trying to get something changed? No, I've had I've had debates about this, of course, on Twitter, because where else do you go for intellectual debate? Right. Um, but, but, you know, the median age for an American is 38 years old. And when we have representatives who are twice that age, it's problematic because it's not truly representative of the culture in which we live and also the goals, the mores, the beliefs that we hold. Rather, it's a very antiquated system. And while you can be older and you can get up to speed and have very youthful ideologies and beliefs and whatnot, it's still a whole different framework and outlook. And so we need to divorce ourselves from the thought that we need someone who is an elder to lead or someone who is white and male to lead. It's all of these old school mentalities that have gotten us into the problematic life and United States that we know it to be today. So my God, why don't they give up the helm and let other people in at the stage? I mean, I have answers to that, but they're not good ones. So... And pr- I think they, we know they end why with a dollar sign. <laughs> they end exactly, with a dollar. They, 
I, I think they're good answers. They just may not be nice, yeah. but they're very good answers. Well, I'm not nice, so there's that. But yeah, <laughs> but you know, it's really interesting to me. It's like, I mean, it's I'm not saying it's it's better anywhere else in the world, but there are differences that you can see, and it's just like okay, like right now, everyone is like going out wanting change, and then you put another really old candidate up and I'm like wow I think you missed that train again like <laughs> oh yeah like, and you know I, I do and I'm, I'm, I'm not I am particularly one to criticize the United States in part because it's my country I want it to be better and unfortunately we don't have a really robust educational system and we have right. a really robust racist system and yeah. these, you know, these core things, they continue to permeate the mindsets of a good 50% plus of individuals who are voting on our system. And so we will continue to go in these circles and chase our tails until something gives. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes I, I want to say things and I'm, I'm, I'm like, should I say it right now? Yes, that's what I'm thinking. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly what I'm thinking. And I'm yeah. like, maybe not. So, okay. I, you know, the thing is also, if we look at both of your topics combined, you know, like feminism, patriarchy, but like it shows up so much in the work environment because like, as you said, right, our supervisors or bosses harass as well. I kind of want to say it's rarely a woman that is lesbian harassing us. So probably it was a white middle-aged or elderly man. And then it's like, <sighs> nothing changed. And so I wonder like, what can we do? And it's probably for Adrienne, especially like, do you have like some, some really good tips if we come into a new company, for example, right? How can I check out who's the, the creepy one and who isn't? Well, it's interesting you say that because it's so important to remember that sexual harassment has nothing to do with sex. So you can be harassed by someone, heterosexual, homosexual, or asexual. It does not matter. It's about power yeah. and making you feel small and play small. And oftentimes they'll target you because you don't fit the mold, because there is something different about you and maybe you do not align with the traditional kind of patriarchy design of what a woman should be. And thus they mm. will come at you and come your way. And God forbid you also be a racial minority or a sexual minority because then they may also target you for that. You never know. But the reality is that you do know is that you don't have to deal with it. And so when it comes to identifying people Generally, um, as I map out in my book, there are very kind of standard behavioral sets that can tell you a lot about someone um, because when it comes to sexual harassment in the workplace, oftentimes it's because you don't meet the traditional mores and molds of, you know, aligning with the patriarchy. So maybe you're single as a woman, or maybe you are overeducated, or maybe you're in a primarily dom male-dominated or traditionally male-dominated field and the patriarchy finds that to be threatening. Mm -hmm. For instance, there is an incredible woman that I wrote about who's a firefighter in New England. And the harassment she faced from being called uh, a bitch, cunt, they would throw uh, human brain matter on her face when she was out in the field trying to save lives. They would 
drop um, gurneys, disobey her orders. They do all sorts of things. And this is a form of sexual harassment because they're basically coming at her because they're threatened by the existence of her gender in a traditionally male-dominated space. I just, I loathe the term sexual harassment because it's a complete and total misnomer Mm because it's not about sex. This is largely about gender. It can be about sexual identity, but it's about saying that you don't align with how your gender is supposed to be and you do not know your place and thus I am going to put you in it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's incredible because when you mention that and I'm looking back, then I probably dismissed a good 70% of the sexual harassment because I was almost only in male-dominated areas. I became a team leader for 160 people in IT by the age of 22 and nobody liked that one because <laughs> they were all 10, 20 years older. And when I walked in on my first day, they were like, Bobby, what are you doing here? <laughs> and fair enough. I looked quite um, dressed up as the dress code said, you know, business outfit. I had also fake nails, a lot of makeup and all of the things, high heels and all of the things that you have as 22-year-old sometimes. And so it was very interesting, but they just couldn't calm down. And uh, everything that you just said, despite of the brain matter, we didn't have that in our IT field. But everything else, just, yep, daily basis. Yep. Yeah. You know, I want to add that sexual harassment is so pervasive and it's so common that in my therapy practice over the years, I'll work with women who'll, who will in, who internalize it because it happens again and again, right? And that's where my message is, it's not you, it's the patriarchy. You did not create this. You did not do this. It's not your fault. It's not what you're wearing. It's not how you're acting. There's nothing wrong with you. It is happening because of the patriarchal system and because the people in power in the system are threatened. By th- threatened by you and by your power. Absolutely. I'm going to send all of those, the podcast from 11 years ago and be like, you should listen to that. Remember that time? <laughs> oh. I remember one of my first jobs was, was at, uh, maybe I was 18 at a veterinarian's office, you know, on Long Island. And I was only there an hour and the, <clears throat> the vet walked behind me, put his arm around my low waist, you know, oh in that way God. that men uh-huh. do that we all hate and kind of rubbed his, his pelvis against me as he, as he made his way around me. And I didn't know what to do, but I left for lunch and I didn't come back and I didn't oh, tell wow. anyone, right? Because I thought I deserve that somehow. Right. And mm. that's an unusual response for women. Like I must have done something, especially if uh, you've had prior trauma, if you're young. Right. Um, but wow. And he did that right in front of four other employees. Wow. And I, I know you made the right decision in walking out. Whether yeah. you, yeah, I know you know that now for <laughs> sure. Cause it just would have gotten worse if it was that egregious mm-hmm. day one. Mm-hmm. It's like, it's essentially he's pissing on your leg to make Absolutely. sure you know your place. That's so disgusting. Yeah. yeah. Wow. And that's how I thought it. If he's doing this today on the first day where I'm like being tried out, what's going to happen in six months? 
That's right. Yeah. And, it's always, and I love to, um, you know, I don't love it, but you know how insecure you must be to interact with the new young hire like that. Like you have to be wildly insecure. That's Absolutely. so gross. It is yep. really gross. Yep. It's insane. Like the, like thinking back really the, the amounts of, as you say, insecurity, but also like what they've basically done to get validation from other men. For example, I was offered as a sex object to other clients in an advertisement agency. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. there were guests coming in to get like advertisement done. And my colleague was like, oh, by the way, we also offer our, uh, our student up for sex. And I was like, no, we don't. And he was like, oh, <laughs> yeah, you just don't know about it. And I'm like, no, 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 I'm quite sure we don't. Like, if you try, it's going to be a big problem for you. And he's like, to the, like, turning away from me and talking to the guests and saying, like, she's just joking. If you want to book her, she's free for lunch. And I'm like, oh, my God. No, I'm not. And no, this is not funny. This is not, like, no. And this guest was looking a little bit awkward and a little bit intrigued. And I'm like, this is really disgusting. Like, so yeah, there's a lot like, and when you're so young, it was like the same age as this happened to you, Joanne. I was, and I already, you know, signed contract. I was six months in. It was all great there. And suddenly they turned like all disgusting. And I was like, wow, and I must so have done something too. wrong. Yeah. No, yeah, because they they become the gatekeepers of our economic independence, our professional development, the opportunities we get. And when essentially your ascension uh, rests on your willingness to succumb to this form of degradation and to be able to make yourself sexually available and just oftentimes make yourself willing to entertain that nonsense and kind of be their pincushion for their insecurity or their springboard so that they feel a little bit better by making, knowing you went home crying or felt threatened, how much that puts you on the defense at all times and Mm -hmm. also how it eats at you. And I know Joanne has a better landscape on the psychological aspects of this, but it just makes you feel preyed upon so often when all you want to do is your job. And as you get older, when you have more riding on the line, a mortgage, you have car payments and everything that comes with adult obligations. And when you're put in situations like that and they know that, Mm -hmm. and so they leverage those golden handcuffs to make you even more submissive. It's a hell of a thing. Yeah. And it's It's a chronic stressor. Yeah, it is disgusting. And it's a chronic stressor, right? That, that women are living with and having to deal with every day. It's like an ongoing traumatic stressor of trying to keep your sa- yourself safe at work, but also achieve and be successful and earn an income and, you know, just keep your life stable. And then to have this ongoing trauma every day, basically, you know, it, it does this, these are, these stories that we're telling are everyday sexism for women. And I'm not sure that a lot of people really get that. They think it's unusual, right? Mm -hmm. It's unusual that this happens, but this is not unusual. We could all, the three of us could share our stories for hours probably. And most women are going to have stories, right? 
almost yeah. all women are going to have stories. Um, and so I think it's important that people understand that this really is everyday sexism. And these stories are why women have such high rates of anxiety, depression, PTSD, and eating disorders. Yeah, I want to catch up on this because what you said about this uh, consistent trauma, I feel like, and that happened to me too, and I probably, it took me forever to even get to the point to to realize that you're kind of put in this consistent state of fight, flight, freeze, because you're mm -hmm. always in alarm uh, mode, trying to know when someone comes from the back to turn around, knowing who it is, not, you know, not to be touched wrong or being surprised or whatever you're always on the move you're always like so it was it was indeed consistently even though sometimes i didn't realize but i was always in alarm mode there was never a safe moment um especially because i was always in male dominated areas and i had i was pre-traumatized with sexual violence as well so it was especially like no one's gonna get close here definitely not I rather punch the hell out of them before they get any closer. And so I feel like, um, as you say, Chen, people don't believe these stories because they sound so unbelievable because how do they get away with it, right? And when I told my story for the first time to friends, they were looking at me and they're like, nah, not in Germany. And I'm like, yeah, that's really common over here. Like, no, but we have a really good legal system. I'm like, sure, in doubt for the perpetrator. That's how it works here. And it's it's just um, people still, when I talk about it, cannot believe the amount, the consistency, the uh, the frequency that women go through that. And they're like, are you sure that that it's not about you? And I'm like, I usually tell them <laughs> to fuck off. And then, yeah, <laughs> and then I, and then I say, I'm really sure you can ask 10 of your girlfriends and eight of them will confirm stories like this. And yeah. it's not, and it almost, yeah. it, it, it seems like some of these people want to have a certain reality in their mind about how the world works, yeah. that everything's fair, that everyone has, you know, an equal opportunity and that people aren't constantly victimized. And if that reality is shaken, they're unwilling to adopt it or to accept it, that it has to be you. It can't be something about the world in which we live and the everyday reality that they are ignoring. Because we've been talking about this, you know, women have been talking about our victimization. I know we've had more of a whisper campaign for the most of society until the Me Too movement, but my God, it has been there. It's just the choice that people want to ignore it. And other women engage in that same behavior. They want to pretend it's you because mm -hmm. then they don't have to acknowledge their own reality. That's and right. it just gets exhausting where these people are just ill-equipped to handle the fact that this world is kind of terrible and most people who you think are good are kind of heinous. And this is, this is our lives. Yeah, and I feel the reason because they don't want to acknowledge it because then they need to look at themselves and they need mm -hmm. to be like, so, okay, if that means this is not something that I, that people should be doing, did I do something like that? Or have mm -hmm. I, 
have I allowed something like that in my life? Or, you know, and then everyone would need to change and change is uncomfortable. Oh no, bad news. And so it's like, uh, we better don't say anything. We better don't look at it. It's so nice out here because it doesn't affect me. Isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So what do you think? I mean, I could ask all of these questions over and over again. So (laughs) what would be one thing, and that's for both of you, that, that you wish women would change in themselves, but also for other women and, and in the interaction with other women in order to kind of improve the situation? On my end, I would like more women to speak up, to call people out. Uh, For instance, just the other day, I had to call out a minister who was texting me about bikini photos I would post on Instagram. And this person follows me and I know them and I work with them. And if they have a comment to make, they can make it on the gram. You don't need to send me a private DM. So I called it to his attention and said, you know what? You only seem to text me about my Instagram photos when it's me on vacation in a bathing suit photo, which I just recently started posting out of more of a a body positivity liberation element. And the fact that you are sending me this, ooh, looking good kind of comments and you're married and all these other things, like that's not okay. So I called him out. I don't ever expect to hear from him or work with him again because I'm sure he shook it by virtue of the fact that I made the observation on X date, you you said this, on X date, you said that yet you never otherwise comment on my Instagram, can you please stop? I'm going to be the crazy one in his book. I'm going to be the one who is out of line and hypersensitive, but I'm confident he's probably doing that to other women too. It's just they don't say anything about it. Mm -hmm. So it'd be nice if I wasn't out here standing on this cliff calling out the patriarchy alone. So I would appreciate it if other women would join me because I do not want to sit with your whisper campaign anymore. I want the behavior to stop. Mm -hmm. That's just how I feel. Amen. Yes. I would like to specifically call on white women to speak up. Amen. About patriarchy <laughs> and about racism and really about any inequality. And I think that I, I'd like to ask also white women, you, you can start in your relationship. This is particularly for straight white women. You can start in your relationship with your boyfriend, with your husband, by elevating your standards and to not accept this sort of bullshit bro behavior that we all know you hate, right? <laughs> so start by, start by changing the dynamics of your relationship and you know, speaking up for yourself, raising your standards, not let, you know, allowing the, the, um, the gap at home with uh, work, uh, housework and childcare. And also uh, let's just diminish the orgasm gap as well, which is quite significant in heterosexual relationships where many women will not speak up about what they want, will fake orgasms, will not, you know, insist on getting an orgasm the way that they do, right? Which is not for many women uh, through penetrative intercourse, et cetera. So for all of those things, I want to say, come on, let's go. Let, you know, you, you, I know you want equality, start in the home. I love that. And I want to top it off. I want to call out white spiritual woman 
to stop mm. fucking spiritual bypass the shit out of, well, if we're here already, <laughs> I want you to stop spiritual bypass the shit out of patriarchy and racism and whatever comes within there because I'm really tired and exhausted of your love and light bullshit that doesn't come with shadow, that doesn't come with the hard work, that doesn't come with all of the, you know, the uncomfortable work that it takes to actually let love and light in. Because some news for you, there's duality in life. It doesn't only is like happiness and all of the contentment and the wheat and the gland-based medicine. And I'm probably going to get a lot of haters for that. But hey, <laughs> I know where the block button is. So here we go. Um, <laughs> well, I need to say that because I'm really, and it's, it's, it's gonna sound really like complaining now. So give me a second on that, but it's tiring to see that everywhere, not only for me, but especially for our BPOC friends, LGBT friends that are fighting a human rights issue and everyone just throws around like, oh, Maybe you try not to feel oppressed. And maybe you should try shove it up your ass. Did I say <laughs> that out loud? I guess no, so. No, but- you did. And as a Black woman, <laughs> I, I appreciate it more than anything because you're absolutely right. There's a segment of our community, I grew up with a lot of them, who just want to, for instance, quote MLK about love and, you know, love always wins kind of thing without dealing with the reality that sometimes we need some tough love. We need you to stand up and to confront the reality. You can't just pretend everything is hunky-dory and that's going to fix the situation. And if anything, I think that that faux mentality is in its own support for the oppressor. Yes. And they, they, to be honest, I think they know that by now because there's no way you can't know. The fact that you oh. are silent is no, they, there's so much denial on that still. And that you mentioned MLK is really interesting because I had to, these type of people on my wall last week and I had to, it was like, no, uh-uh. And I feel like they use MLK because they don't know other black people that they could use, end quote. And, and um, they're, whitewashing, they're whitewashing MLK. Like they have no idea he was a <sighs> radical. Yep. Yeah. Letters from Birmingham. Like they, mm-hmm. there are so mm-hmm. many other things that, that they want to ignore. Yeah. <sighs> I have, I'll, I have a few more things I want to get into. And since I'm making the time here and I hope you have a few more minutes for me, I'm just going to extend the time. So here's, there's it. I want to hear both of your definitions of feminism, because, you know, there are so many people out there who don't believe in feminism because they believe that's a men-hater club. So <laughs> talking about spiritual bypassing. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm going to let I Joanne find, handle this one. <laughs> I find I that am. the first thing that I have to do is re-educate people about feminism because over the years, white women have had uh, most of the sort of the platform to to talk about what feminism is. And it led the general public to believe that feminism is women's equality with men. But what that really looks like is white women's equality with white men, right? And Hmm. that's not feminism. 
So Mm. not all men have access to power and privilege. So, you know, if you're looking at equality as what it would be like for a middle-class white woman to be equal with her, you know, middle-class white husband, that's going to be very different for, let's say, um, a Black trans female, what equality would look like for her. So feminism is dismantling systems of oppression, interlocking systems of oppression. So certainly dismantling the patriarchy and sexism, but that's not all alone by itself in the corner, right? It's intertwined with racism, with classism, with homophobia, ableism, you know, all of these different systems intersect. And so that's my definition that I use in the book, which is a combination of bell hooks and Patricia, Patricia Hill Collins to black feminists. So I use their work and give it to, to white women to, <laughs> to um, actually learn, you know, what feminism really is. I love that. I still want to hear your definition, Adrienne. Oh, it's nowhere near as intelligent as Joanne's, <laughs> which is why I'm 100% going to defer to her. Because uh, the, I guess, defini- defining feminism is not my specialty as much as uh, workplace sexual harassment and law is. So I prefer to defer to experts as opposed to interject my <laughs> own ignorance into things. I just think it's too bad. <laughs> All right. <laughs> we'll take that. So I, I, you mentioned something, Adrienne, that I really want to pick up on, and I think we all can refer to that one when you talked about this minister that you just um, put into place that he probably is going to think that you are the crazy one. And this is something that, hell no, have I heard that all the time when I stood up and I set boundaries and I was like, this is not okay. Oh no, you're crazy. This is not what I was doing. Or you make this all up in your mind. Oh, when I hear this sentence, it just, it gives me so much shivers. It's, oh my God, my whole back is tensing up. When I hear this, like, you make this all up in your mind. (sighs) So someone comes along with this gaslighting bullshit. You're crazy. You make this up in your mind. What are we going to do? Whether it's about feminism or workplace um, harassment, what are we going to do? Oh, I, it's, my thought is that your thoughts of me have nothing to do with me. So mm-hmm. if you think I'm making things up in my mind, you tell yourself what you need to tell yourself to not address your behavior. That's what I'm hearing. Because otherwise, we'd be sitting down, and if you want to go through the elements, you want to go through the facts, you want to have an adult conversation, we can do that. But by virtue of the fact that you seek to dismiss me or in some way undermine or downgrade my recollection, that's on you, buddy. But I'm not here to be gaslit. I know what my reality is. Fortunately, in the situation with the minister, my text messages don't delete, so I can just scroll up and I can point to facts and screenshot and send them back to you, need be. But as far as I'm concerned, your thoughts of me and whatever you need to tell yourself, that's about, that's a you game. But I can tell you how you are going to interact with me and that I'm not going to tolerate that behavior. I think too often we women allow ourselves to be gaslit uh, because we are conditioned to be told we need to always appear pleasing to men or Mm. always appear one way or the other way. And also, I feel like by this point, uh, as much as uh, crazy is now kind of considered an ableist language, 
you know, it's this thought of when a man says a woman is crazy, you know that he engaged in some nonsense to essentially come up with that term to kind of gaslight her and others around you and to keep them from interacting with her. But we all kind of get that now, that it's because you did something that is the problematic piece and she probably called you out on it and you didn't like it. But for people who need to lie to themselves, that has nothing to do with me. And I just don't, I, I do not subscribe to nonsense. And so I, I just really encourage other people out there, stick to your reality. You know exactly what you experience. You know how you feel. Setting boundaries, you shouldn't feel bad about it. And if someone says you are wild and out of this game because you set those boundaries, nah, they're not the people, people for you. And they don't respect you. So keep moving. I love that. Good boundary setting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. How about you, Joanne? Well, sort of the same. And in terms of gaslighting, um, I want to point out that where many women get stuck is women who have a lot of empathy. And they have so much empathy that they, they stop seeing the issue from their own perspective. And then they enter the mind of the perpetrator, the gaslighter, whomever, and see the situation from their perspective. And then women get all confused and turned around about what's real and what's true. And that is sort of a downfall. That is a vulnerability factor for gaslighting. So I like to teach women to, ha- to replace empathy with caring concern. Caring concern. So, so because you know, you might this might be somebody not not in Adrian's story, obviously, you know, but this might be somebody that you have an ongoing relationship with, maybe that you can't end or don't want to end, but you know, you don't want to get sucked into their world and 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 give them you know all this emotional labor of your empathy every day, which is so draining and exhausting and messes up your reality, but instead you can, you can care and you can be concerned, but you don't have to take action. You can say that sounds hard. That sounds hard (laughs) and move on. You know, you don't have to do anything, but, but to stay in your own reality, when you're giving, when you're seeing a problem through the other person's behavior, you know, perspective, then that's a boundary issue and you got to pull back and get into and stay in your own your own lane, so to speak. That sounds hard. It is. It is hard because I have been exploited many times because yeah. I am highly empathetic mm-hmm. and I'm a fixer and problem solver. So when mm-hmm. you come to me with a problem, and that's how sexual harassers got me roped in at ESPN by telling me they needed help. And I am a helper. That's what I live and breathe for, to be able to share my knowledge and skills to uplift people, only to learn that, no, these people were, you know, hucksters trying to rope me in uh, to eventually, in hopes of breaking me down, because my thought is like, what are you going to do, force yourself on me? That's why I never figured, uh, but this thought that they were going to break me down in some way so that I would assent to their, you know, sexual misgivings. I, I, I don't know, but if had I had Joanne's advice then to not, and also had I had my own advice and knowledge that I know now in terms of how these people angle into your lives to try to exploit you, I would be far better off, arguably. Yeah. And, you know, I want to validate it is hard, but it's, it's just a skill and anyone can learn a skill. 
right? So, so even with that awareness, like now everyone listening will be like, oh, maybe, maybe I shouldn't feel empathic. Like all of a sudden you start to rethink and think through. And so you can change for yourself that own pattern of behavior, which still doesn't make the harassment your fault, right? It's just yes. a vulnerability factor. Absolutely. I love that. And now I've developed in terms of, because Joanne's totally right in terms of skill. So now I'll, what I do now is that when people come to me for help, now that I recognize how my generosity and empathy has been exploited, I now reserve my skills to help people for those who have unfortunately earned it because I start to see it more transactional. So I, in, I wait and reserve my energy for when I say people who have earned it, those are people who I have rapport with, people who have been there for me or who have shown me like family and friends. Because I've also realized that if I'm out here running the streets, expending my energy for every Dick, Jane, and Harry, then I'm not going to have much energy to help those who I love. Mm -hmm. And so I have to, as I'm still building on this skill, I have to now see it almost, almost like transactional mm -hmm. of who, who's been in this game with me for the longest. Okay, I'm going to save and reserve my energy and my skill for them. And then everyone else, I think the word Joanne used, what was it? Is it caring concern? I have to express caring concern for everyone on the outside until I can truly decipher and have that skill built up. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, that's amazing. And it's really resonating. I've, I had a lot of these experiences, obviously, because I do what Jen just talked about a lot of uh, seeing people's experience from their lens and it doesn't help a lot when you're being sucked into their, <laughs> into their environment. And I talk in my book about efficiency, energy efficiency also to realize who's going to have toxic behaviors around you, even if they're not toxic as a person, but every person can have any toxic behavior or any traits that can feel toxic for you. You know, like it doesn't have to feel toxic for a trend, but it can be toxic for me depending on our own boundaries, depending on our own energy levels. And, and I talked about as well, like how to see them, how to um, acknowledge them and then, you know, just distance yourself and be sure to keep those energy levels high. I love, love, love all of that. I have two questions in the theme of the podcast that I always ask all of my guests. So I would love to ask both of them to you and then we wrap it all up with a little bow and get to the end. So the first of the questions is, what does efficiency mean to you? Not having to do everything myself. Yeah. <laughs> Getting other, you know, delegating delegating stuff to my husband, delegating yeah. stuff to my daughter. Like that's not effective, but <laughs> depends. Um, hiring someone. Yeah. 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 <laughs> for me, efficiency is, is getting help. And if that means paying for it, I pay for it. I love that. Uh, for me, efficiency would be, gosh, it'd be maximizing your time to focus on the things that are aligned with your goals and making sure it gets done I guess in the quickest way possible, yet the most effective way possible. Yeah, I think that would be my definition of efficiency. Yeah, I love that. It's amazing because like every guest has their own 
experience and definition. So it's always awesome to hear that. So last question for the day is, if you would have to get to the point of success that you have today, but you have to push the reset button, but keep all of your knowledge, which of the three things would you keep repeat doing to get back? I think I need you to repeat that again. Yes. <laughs> okay. So we push the reset button. Okay. Everything is deleted. You're starting over, but you have the knowledge that you have today and you want to get back to the success that you have today. So which three things are you doing to get back there? All right. I like that question. That's interesting. I'm definitely still going to law school without mm -hmm. question. That nice. paid for its own and continues to pay for itself. I, let's see, I'm probably going to still get all of the schooling that I got. I think that that has been very significant for my journey and it's taken me into the, all, the, all the places that I've been to. And gosh, I, I, I don't know what my third one would be. Yeah. Uh, I, I, yeah, I don't, I don't know what my third would be, but those, those would be my two. Maybe strong boundaries or wearing yellow. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> we're gonna do. Uh, we could do abstract uh, without question. <laughs> strong boundaries, absolutely. Yeah. Love that. Love it. I think for me, um, tr trusting my intuition. I've never been wrong when I've listened to my intuition. Moving off of Long Island earlier, <laughs> like I would, I would do. I would go back and do that. And, uh, and maintaining my, my education, my educational background. But yeah, those are my three. Amazing. I love all of that. Joanne and Adrienne, it's been such a pleasure to have you on and to share all of that. And before I kick you off, I really want to know where can people find you? What's your books all about? And where can they find those books, please? Go ahead, Joanne. Sure. So I'm Joanne Bagshaw again, and you can uh, find me on my website, joannebagshaw.com or Instagram, which is joanne.bagshaw. Um, <laughs> and my book is The Feminist Handbook, Practical Tools to Resist Sexism and Dismantle the Patriarchy. Of course, you can get it at Amazon, but I prefer an indie bookstore. Yes, and, me too. <laughs> <laughs> I, um, um, my website is adrianjlawrence.com. Um, my book is Staying in the Game, the playbook for beating workplace sexual harassment. You can find me most on Twitter at Adrian Law, although I'm also on Instagram at Adrian Lawrence. And my book is available everywhere books are sold. I love that. And I just realized your Twitter handle, Adrian Law, you do law. That's pretty cool though. I do. I do. And it's something I stumbled upon because my last name and my first name combined were too long for a Twitter handle. So yeah. it all worked out. Amazing. <laughs> and as with episode, everyone was, no, okay. I'm going to start this sentence again. As with every episode, everyone, that's a kind of a tongue breaker. You will find all of the links in the show notes below. So don't miss out to go buy those books, get educated dismantle the patriarchy start today or yesterday because we're we're really late with all of that so please help me uh, celebrate these women and yeah subscribe to the podcast because uh, you know how it is with all of these things so until next week 
You've been listening to Efficiency On Demand. On Demand. We hope you've learned that you too can unlock your ultimate potential, how to control your time, create some clarity in your crazy life, and how to live life limitless. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe to the podcast and please follow on Instagram at the Monique Lindner. We'll see you next time on Efficiency On Demand with Monique. Remember to slow down to speed up.